We're going to read our scripture today, which is Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to find it in a Bible or on an electronic device this morning and follow along. In many ways, as you're finding it, in many ways this uh, is the continuation of last week's text in Joshua 9. Joshua made a treaty with the Gibeonites, perhaps ill-advised, uh, and now you guys stand by that treaty. Joshua 10, 1 through 15. Now Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it by doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appeared to Hoham, king of Hebron, Pyram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deborah, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it had, has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Gibeonites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and then cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nations avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being, Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice verses 8 and then the second half of verse 13. And then I want us to think about prayer this morning. Verse 8 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. So this is God speaking directly. Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. God's already delivered victory. And then at the, at the second half of verse 15, after it talks about the book of Jashar, it's a book of prayers, the book of righteous, the righteous. We don't have that book, but that's what it's referring to. It says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about half a day. Here's a question for us to consider. How do you and I walk with God in such a way that he already delivers victory and the sun will stand still if we simply ask? 
How do we walk with God in such a relationship like that? Not that God's a divine vending machine, we can just get what we want, but how can we walk in such a close relationship with God that prayer does remarkable things like that when we're walking with God, that we see God do works like that around us? Because it's a bold ask, isn't it, of Joshua? God, we're fighting our enemies. You've called us into this war. It's your war. Now make the sun stand still. We can talk about the language later. Make the sun stand still so we can defeat them. It's a bold ask, isn't it? And as we think about prayer this morning, just think about your own personality too, because I know that some of us are bold people by nature, and some of us are not bold people by nature. Uh, we, we don't want to push the limits on anything. Some of us push it. We don't even think twice about it. You know, I, I know that I can be bold in circum- certain, certain circumstances and not in others. Uh, when I've traveled in other countries, I've been able to bargain, and I'm pretty bold in my bargaining, and I kind of enjoy the, the bargaining practice. I wish we did it more here in this country. I like it. Um, and when we have to do a customer service call, Stephanie hands the phone to me because she knows I'm pretty bold in those calls, right? Uh, we had a great uh, story the other day. Uh, I asked Elliot, my middle daughter, if I could tell this, and she said, yes, please. We were at Moral Hall, and uh, I, all three of my kids were there with me. We were in the gift shop at Moral Hall, where you end up at the end, of course, in every uh, outing like that. And um, if, if you've met Elia, our, my middle daughter, she generally is quiet. So she's not one to go and make a lot of contact. But if you make contact with her, I think you'll enjoy it very much. Um, So anyways, she looks at me and she says, Hey, Dad, can I go ask the owner of the gift shop if they have anything free? That is the college kid standing behind the counter is the owner of the gift shop. And I said, sure, go ahead. And before the word sure had even exited my mouth, she's already there asking at the counter, which is a huge deal for her. That's bold. That's a big deal for her. Some of us are bold, some of us aren't. We know our own personalities. Joshua asks this of the Lord, and I would suggest to you that this is a moment where conviction meets prayer, where his belief that God is able meets the ability of God to do it. Those two things matched up. And let's talk about conviction, because we started way back at the beginning of the series, defining it in simple terms. Conviction is just belief. And and if we apply it in a case like this, it's the belief that God is able. Anybody here believe that God is able? God is able, that God can do what he promised, and if God wants to accomplish something, it will get done. Nothing can hold God back from accomplishing what God has set out to do. And God calls us to be a part of that. And the conviction is simply another way of saying belief or faith. Faith, I think, has been kind of tarnished in our culture so that we don't even know what we mean when we say it anymore. But conviction means that we get it, I think. And belief, is they're kind of synonymous. Prayer is the part that then when you throw that in, conviction meeting prayer is the part that I think can throw us off. Because prayer, we often think about the list of requests and things. Prayer is the great conundrum, even for people who have followed Jesus Christ for a long time. They struggle with prayer and how to pray and how do I pray? What is prayer actually accomplishing? Prayer, I simply say, is about relationship, not request. Prayer is about relationship, not request. Prayer is not simply a transactional thing that we do with God where we say, I've got this list of bullet point items that I wish you would do. Now would you please go do that? We wouldn't apply that in most of our human friendships or with your spouse or whatever and consider that a viable, functional relationship. 
That's just a transactional relationship. Prayer is much more than that. Prayer is an interchange and a walk with God and a conversation with God and actually having the heart of God be placed within you so that you can walk with God and want what God wants and walk in close communion with him. That's what we're trying to accomplish in prayer. Joshua prays courageously and with conviction. He believes that God can. And so the question before us today, and we're not just looking at Joshua 10, this kind of takes into account a lot of what we've seen of Joshua and more is, what can Joshua teach us about praying with courageous conviction? As you consider that, let's consider this. Uh, a story of a, uh, one of my colleagues in ministry who serves a big church on the West Coast. Years ago, I heard him speak, and he was talking about, he was very involved in our, our uh, covenant mission work in the Congo. He happened to be in the Congo at the time, and he comes from a pretty affluent area, a pretty big church, an affluent church, as it turns out as well. So he's in the Congo in a small village uh, that's, you know, pretty underserved, but we've been working there for a while with a whole bunch of kids around him just excitedly there to see him mothers and fathers around him and the pastor a local pastor from the village there with him and after a long time of playing together and doing things together uh you know in this little village that you know barely had running water in many ways a complete difference the opposite of where he had come from the pastor looks at him and says would you pray for us and he said at that moment all of my affluent west coast prayers were insufficient i had no words i had nothing to enter into that moment. It was so completely different and unexpected for me. And I would suggest to you, if we ask how do most of us pray, that's sometimes how we approach prayer. We're kind of dumbfounded for a moment. Wait, what? We don't have the words. We don't have the language sometimes in order to do it. So let me give you three different types of prayers that we sometimes do. I've been guilty of them. Perhaps you enter into them this way, and then we can talk about kind of moving beyond those. The first is Many of us, if you think about how you pray, many of us pray prayers of confusion. That is to say, we go before God and we say, God, I'm going before you in prayer, but I'm a little confused by it because you already know what's going to happen. So why am I here? Second, the prayers of the just. Now, you'll see on the image uh, that the just is in quotation marks. I was not aware of this reality until I was standing around a whole lot of Anglicans and others when I was in graduate school in British Columbia who pointed out, why do you evangelicals all use the word just in your prayers all the time? Now that I told you, listen for it, you'll hear it all the time. God, if you would just do this, if you would just make this happen, if you would just allow this, and, and it happens all the time, God, if you would just maybe possibly do this one thing, just this one time. You'll hear it, fellow evangelicals. You'll hear it. There's something rather sheepish about that, though, isn't there? God, I, don't, I want to come before you, but I don't want to come before you with much. Just do this one thing, and then just do this other thing, and then just do this other thing. And then there's a third kind of prayer, which you can see I put these in circles because they do kind of overlap. The prayers of confusion bleed into the prayers of the just, but then there's a prayer of low expectations. So this combines kind of the prayers of confusion with the prayer of the just in the prayer of low expectations just to say, you know, God, I'm praying to you. I'm not really sure why I'm praying to you because you already know it, and I don't expect you to do anything about it, right? So if the prayer of confusion feels like busy work, 
like we would do in school where you're like, I'm not sure what this assignment is really for other than to keep me busy. The prayers of low expectation are busy work where you don't even get a grade, right? It, it feels like, okay, God, I, I just don't even know why I'm here because you're not going to act upon anything I'm saying. We may find ourselves in those places sometimes when it comes to prayer because prayer is a conundrum, I think. Prayer can really throw us off. Prayer is best done by practicing, by the way. If you're in any one of those, you, you've got to just do it. You can read all the books in the world you want about it, but you've got to do it to start and to, to begin to move past those. But I want to give us some encouragement from Joshua and from his predecessor Moses as we consider that we can get stuck in those places of prayer, but we actually need to learn to walk with God, and it does take time. So consider Moses. At the end of his life, after he dies, it's said a number of good things are said about him, but in Exodus, Deuteronomy, excuse me, 34, 13, or 12, it says, For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And he was able to do that because he had a vibrant walk with God who was guiding him along the whole way. He walked with God in a life of prayer with Moses. And that's the end of his life. But if you look at the beginning of his life, it didn't start out so remarkable. At the beginning of his life, he had fled because of his own sin. He's living kind of in exile, self-exile in a sense. And he's going before the burning bush where God's calling him to do a task that he's not really sure he wants to do. Nor is he sure he has the skill to do it. And he kind of pushes back on God. God, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the one for this. You know, I've got a brother. He can, he can do things. I, I'm not the right guy for this job. Right at the very beginning, God approaches him, but he's really not there yet. He, he slowly enters into it. And even there are times when after walking with God for a long period of time, he still messes up along the journey, hitting the rock instead of just speaking and doing other things like that along the way that, that show that he's walking with God, but he's still very human about it. It takes him time to learn to walk with God, to get to that end result where people can recognize him and say, that guy walked with God in close relationship. He had to learn along the way. Moses, the great leader of the Old Testament. It takes time to learn to pray, and it takes time to learn to pray courageously. Joshua, I feel like, had a bit of a head start, but I mean, what are the, what are the instructions given to him when he enters into the land? Be strong and courageous. Also be strong and courageous. Also be strong and very courageous. Also be strong and courageous. Also, and over and over, you hear it over and over. Why does Joshua need that? Well, because he needs to know that God's with him. He needs to know that God is able. He needs, he needs to be reassured along the way. And he makes mistakes too. I still think if you look at when he sends the spies in in chapter 2, they don't really learn much useful information, at least from what we can tell. And it almost seems like Again, busy work that doesn't get a grade in many ways. But if you look, especially last week, he makes a big giant mistake with the Gibeonites. And now they have to take care of that. He makes a mistake walk, walking along, walking closely with God. But, but he continues to walk with God to learn. And he learns through the trials. And he learns when he messes up. And that's a key point we should take from both Moses and from Joshua. The only reason that he has the courage to pray this way is because he learned when things didn't go right. He learned how to walk with God in those moments. I want to tell you, I have an assumption this morning. My assumption is that 98.8% of you would love to pray better and walk in closer relationship with God. Any witnesses in the house for that? That's not quite 98.8%, but I think I'm close. I also think, I assume that most of us not just want to walk closer with God and pray better, in the process, 
but that we want to see more disciples made. That we want to see the kingdom of God expanded in our city and in this world. That we want this place and other churches that are in the business of expanding the kingdom to grow and watch and be able to disciple more people and bring in more people. Not because we want to grow, but because we, we want to be faithful to our mission to make disciples. Most of us, I think, uh, need to continue to build faith through prayer, but I think we have a, one problem that's there. I think we have, it's, it's, we have some barriers. They're just little barriers that get in the way of our just stepping through some of these, these little things. It's much like driving with the parking brake on. Right? You're going to get somewhere, but it's going to be frustrating. And you're not going to go very fast. And for a lot of us, we just need to pull the parking brake off in the prayer, life of prayer so we can move forward. So what does Joshua teach us then? What have we learned so far from Joshua that he can teach us about how to pray and how to pray courageously? I'm going to give you a few things. The first is to be thankful for what God has already done. And here I think we can take into account both Moses and Joshua and the journey that Israel's been on up until this point. I don't think you're going to make advancements in prayer. I don't think you're going to remove some of those other barriers in prayer until you're thankful first for what God has done. And that's what we do when we come to worship. We praise God on the basis of who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, and what he's going to do. We're doing all of that when we gather together in corporate worship. And we're not going to be very good at prayer if we're not thankful for what God has done. I mean, if you look at the, the life of Israel now for a couple generations, they've watched God deliver through the plagues. They, they watched the angel of death literally pass over in their obedience to God and take care of, of the problems in Egypt to allow them to escape in the Exodus. They've watched God part the Red Sea and cross the Red Sea. That was the previous generation. Then both generations got to witness uh, the manna and the quail. They both got water in the desert. God set up his tabernacle so his presence was in the midst of them. They built their lives around him in the desert. And in the midst of that, God gave them the ability to sacrifice for atonement so things could be made right between them and God. And even more than that, as they, as they travel through the desert, God uh, gives them divine GPS, basically with a pillar of thought by day and a pillar of fire by night to show them where to go. God's been with them in visible ways through all of this. God essentially stops the water so they can cross the Jordan. They set up a monument so they can remember that and be thankful for it. After they get across, they take Jericho, they take Ai. God keeps delivering promise after promise after promise. And Joshua is not going to be able to have a courageous prayer if he can't remember what God has done. Because it's going to be new news that God could do anything at all at that point if he's not thinking about what God has done. And that's how faith, that's how belief, that's how conviction is built. It's built on the foundation of what God has done. That's what we stand on when we believe. Because they had seen God work in the past, they had confidence that God would work in the future. God had been faithful. They didn't need to doubt that God would be faithful in the future. And they could take steps to do things like consecrate themselves because they knew that God had already delivered the victory. They had confidence because of what God has done. And if we're confused at all about prayer and how to step into a life of prayer, this is a great place to start. Why, do, why would we pray? Because God already knows. We, we, take, we start with, with what we're thankful for, first of all, as our initial step. Now, I think uh, I read this uh, from John Chrysostom, writing in the 300s. Uh, he says, 
This takes it a step further than just being thankful. And this moves us forward to where we're going here. Chrysostom says, if he knows what we need, why must we pray? So let's just point this out. That question's been asked for a long time. Bishop Chrysostom's writing this in the mid-300s A.D. If If he knows what we need, why must we pray? And he says, not to instruct him, but to prevail with him. To be made intimate with him by continuance and supplication, to be humbled, to be reminded of your sins. Right? We pray out of thankfulness, but we pray that so we can have the heart of God and walk in close relationship with him. Then we're going to see things and be amazed at what God does in, in a life of prayer like that. Second thing I would point out that Joshua illustrates for us is that we need to get educated by our messes and mistakes. You can put sin right there too, by our sin. When life goes wrong and when we sin, we can have a couple tendencies at at the two ends of the tendencies. If we sin against God and against someone else, we uh, we should have the tendency to want to admit it, confess, seek forgiveness, and walk forward from there. However, and you can see this play out all over the place, that sometimes our tendency is to dig in and not admit that we were wrong and justify what we did as fully appropriate because of this reason, that reason, and the other reason and rename it or call it something else or in order to save face or somehow just avoid having to change. You know, I'm glad that we don't have Psalm, we have Psalm 51 because David didn't try and do this, right? He didn't try and call his uh, thing with Bathsheba just exploring his sexuality, right? He did wrong. He sinned before the Lord. When we sin, we need to seek forgiveness. We need to confess that we did it wrong, seek forgiveness, move forward. And Joshua 9 and 10 is, is a good example of where Joshua and the leaders didn't get it right. They had to learn from that. They had to stand by their word. We're not sure why they couldn't get out of the treaty. It doesn't tell us, but they stood by their word. And they move forward. And God does amazing things with that, is the remarkable thing. So I, I think actually Joshua 9 and 10 is a kind of a good case study of how to appropriately use Romans 8.28, which sometimes gets used well, sometimes doesn't. You know? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Israel had been tasked with going into Canaan. It was God's war. The people of Canaan, the tribes of Canaan, were warring against God, ultimately, And Israel was tasked with going into Canaan Canaan, in what was going to be a multi-year, multi-city, multi-tribe conquering sort of uh, campaign. And then Joshua messes up with the Gibeonites, and now they have to go in and stand by the Gibeonites in their time of trouble, which looks like it could derail things and make this go faster, mess up the plan, and extend it even longer. And yet, what does God do in the midst of that? God uses this opportunity for Adani Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, to rally together all the tribes that are going to have to be conquered and come together and get defeated all at once. God uses this for his victory. They learn from their mistakes and the messes, and God uses it for his glory still. God uses it to accomplish his purpose. God can do a lot with our messes, it turns out if we turn them over to him. If we don't succumb to pride and to trying to save face in the midst of those. So we need to be thankful 
We want to eliminate one of those barriers to prayer, and we need to get educated by our own messes and mistakes and admit when we're wrong. And admit when we got it wrong and hand it over to God, because God can actually do a lot with that. Better to not mess up in the first place, right? Better to not sin. But God can do a lot with that. Third thing I would say about what we can learn from Joshua. Be thankful, get educated, know the possibilities. Now, it's an impossible task. We can't actually know all that God could do. But we ought to know that God could do it. We need to know that God has all power and potential to exceed the bounds of our human imagination when we go to God in prayer. That God can do more. So, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Exceedingly abundantly, perhaps your translation has. God can do more than we can imagine. We need to recognize that first and foremost as we go to him. So let me point out a little adjustment to our previous point. God can do a lot with our messes. That is absolutely correct. But you know what? God can do more with our obedience. God can do a lot with our messes. God can do more with our obedience. When we walk with him, he can do remarkable things. Even Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22. He says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, when he curses the fig tree and it dies, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that we get a pony if we ask for a pony or a car if we ask for a car. This relates to the kingdom of God and what God wants to accomplish in his kingdom. And by praying and by going to God in prayer and by starting to remove those barriers, we start to recognize what God wants. And we can start to pray for those things, for those things to be realized in our life and our actions. And God will then work through us to make his kingdom come and his will be done. That's what's happening. And remarkable things can come from courageous prayers that look in that direction. But let me point out one last barrier that can be there that's worth pointing out because of this whole issue of the sun standing still and all of that that happens in this passage. Uh, there's a virtue in our culture that's not really a virtue, and that is skepticism. And that can come into play here, too, when it comes to all that we're talking about. And I want to credit, it's a pastor, Baptist pastor I saw this week, had a post uh, named Alex Dean is his name, so I want to give credit to him, but he had a great distinction between doubt and skepticism that I think is worth noting, because we're all going to have moments of doubt in life. And in a vibrant faith, we will have moments where we doubt, perhaps, and that's not, you're not destroyed by that. That's fine. That will happen. We're human. But doubt, uh, as this pastor pointed out, has a sort of an I'm not sure attitude, but there's a humility that goes with it. I'm going to hold the jury's out. I got some questions about this. Not quite so sure that this is the case. But skepticism, as, at least as it plays out, I think, in our culture, adds a layer of arrogance, he points out. Skepticism adds something else to it altogether that, that basically just says, I can't, it won't, and I already know that it won't. And even if you proved it to me, you couldn't prove it to me. Because I've already come up with the conclusion in the first place. So even if you gave me extraordinary evidence, I wouldn't believe it anyways. 
And that can sometimes come to play in us in our life of prayer. We can have a little bit of doubt occasionally. Sure, that's going to happen. But skepticism says God isn't able, is what it does. So when we read something about the sun standing still here, of course, we recognize that uh, uh, maybe we would use different language to describe that. Uh, But God speaks the language of his people at the time, right? And so it makes no sense if they said, sun stand still, and God's response was, actually, I would stop the earth on its axis from rotating, and the elliptical orbit, maybe I would slow that down, or whatever it is, that makes no sense to Joshua, right? Joshua speaks of what he understands and witnessed, and God delivers. And you can Google it if you want to Google it. There's about a zillion articles you can read on did the sun actually stand still, all of which tell you absolutely nothing, except that there's this four possibilities, five possibilities, six possibilities, two possibilities. What we know is Joshua described what happened. We don't exactly know how God did it. That's less interesting than the fact that God somehow made more sunlight for the victory to happen, and that's what happened. And Joshua described it as the sun stood still. And I'll just tell you that the rest of Scripture leads me to believe that that's the case because there's so much we can verify in Scripture. Can't look at the astronomical record and see what happened. It doesn't tell us anything. I can tell you that Joshua said the sun stood still. God delivered victory. The sun stood still and God delivered victory. Amen. The question is, do you believe God is able to do remarkable things when we go to him in prayer? Do you believe that our courageous prayers actually could matter if we're walking in a vibrant relationship with God? And if you believe God is able, then what Joshua says here is not only probable, it's possible and probably happened. God can do remarkable things in you and among us because God is able. So the question, as we come down to the very end, is if we are disciples who make disciples, how can we pray And first of all, say thanks to God for victory already won. How can we pray and say thanks to God for victory already won in your life, for instance? Victory won in people in your own family, where the new creation is being made through Jesus Christ. How can we pray for victory won in different areas of our neighborhood and lives where God is already working and we can see it? How can we be thankful for that in the first place? And secondly, how can you and I pray courageously that things like the sun would stand still, that God's kingdom would advance, because we were so bold to say to God, I believe you're able. Now can we be part of that, God? How can we be so courageous to go before God that way and expect that he's going to do great things and be able to be a part of that? Can we be so humble that we would glorify God with our thanks? Can we be so in tune with God's heart and so bold that we believe that God is able? I'm going to invite us to prayer, actually, and I'm going to invite the band to come forward and get in place. But I'm going to invite us to prayer right now. So band, you can come on up. Uh, to prayer. And I'm going to ask for silence first. And I want us to just reflect on those barriers to prayer that we have in our own life. And then I want you to actually ask God in the silence God, how can I be more courageous in my prayer with you so that my heart beats like yours? How can I be more courageous in you that reveals that I believe that you're able? So let's go to God in silence first, and let's pray for that. And then I'll close us in prayer.
Lord, some of us need a closer walk and we need the new creation to take hold in a deeper way through your son, Jesus Christ. Make that a reality today. Some of us, Lord, have seen remarkable things. We've seen you work, but sometimes we're a little confounded by prayer. Lord, remove those barriers from us. May skepticism become doubt and doubt become belief and conviction as we turn to you. Lord, we want to see your victory. We want to see the sun stand still as you win the victory. We want to be a part of that. Lord, forgive our sins when we disbelieve because we believe that you are exceedingly abundantly able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Make that a reality, Lord, and make us part of that reality. We pray in your name. Amen.